0: You're listening to How Real Estate Works, your one-stop shop for all things real estate. Whether you're looking to learn about real estate investing, buying your first house, growing as a real estate agent, and all things financial freedom related, we got you covered with co-hosts Jesse Johnson and Matt Talent. All right, everyone. Welcome to the How Real Estate Works podcast, episode 20. I'm your host, Matt Talent, and my co-host is Jesse Johnston. So today we're having on Ashley Wilson. She started out in the pharma industry and moved, uh, moved on to start House It Look, a house flipping company in the suburbs of Philadelphia. She founded Barred Down Investments with her husband, which specializes in operating uh, large multifamily properties. You may know her as Badash Investor from Instagram or a recent book, uh, The Only Woman in the Room. So Ashley, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, Thank you. we're super Thank you for being excited on. to have you on. Yeah. I, um, I actually just read the book, uh, like a week ago and I really loved it because I think it like not only highlights local Philadelphia women, uh, investors in the real estate industry, but I think it also gives like one of the best overviews of the real estate industry, like as a whole, um, out of like all the books I've read. Thank you. Yeah. Impressive. (laughs) Yeah. I really, I think it gave like a lot of people deep dived into wholesaling and flipping and all the different aspects of real estate. So I really love the book.
1: Thank you very much. That means a lot.
0: Yeah, definitely. And so you started out in the pharma industry. So how did you go from doing that to transitioning into real estate?
1: I worked in uh, clinical research and development in vaccines for GlaxoSmithKline, and my husband, uh, he was a former professional hockey player. So we both were looking for ways in which we can diversify our retirement strategy, and we weren't firm believers in the stock market. We started looking for alternative investment strategies and stumbled upon real estate and were hooked. So we started with a single family short-term rental, and we house hacked that property. That later turned into long-term rentals. And then I started a flipping company with my dad a little over six years ago. About three and a half years ago, we uh, trans- transitioned excuse me, into multifamily large multifamily. So um, it has been quite a long journey. I feel like people are like, wow, you've had so much overnight success, but it really has not been overnight. We've been doing this for a long time. Um, And we transitioned pretty early outside of our, well, I did uh, transitioned from my W2 to full-time real estate investor in 2014. So I've been at it for uh, quite a, quite a significant amount of time as a full-time investor. Um, So it's just built on top of each other.
0: That's awesome. And yeah, like, even though it's not overnight, still to have the success you've had in six years is still huge. So that's awesome. Um, And I've been thinking about like actually doing my first flip with a partner, kind of similar to how you started out. So can you kind of tell me like how your first flip went and kind of the problems and issues you faced?
1: My dad's a general contractor and he's had his own business for over 40 years. And in that tenure, he's partnered with other investors and he's done flips. He's done all different types of renovations. So he was really uh, cognizant of all these different strategies, but he had never invested himself. So I approached him about partnering with me because he had all this incredible knowledge about renovation, but ultimately he was physically not just, you know, he's older now, so he's not physically capable of doing these full renovations full time any longer. So it's a great transition for us to partner together um, because I'm more business minded and he knows obviously all the construction side of things. We decided to partner together. um, And while we got the first house we offered on, we analyzed and looked at a lot of houses prior to our first offer. And I think looking back, it's kind of scary knowing you get the first house that you offered on. I don't think we even realized what we were doing. I think there was a little bit of a shock. But when I look back, if what I know now, I would have like been ecstatic to get the first house we <laughs> offered on. I didn't think yeah. it was going to be as hard as it ended up being. So we got our first house, and it was a crazy full-gut renovation, 1920s house uh, in Lafayette Hill, Pennsylvania. Um and my dad and i did the entire rehab except for things that you needed to be um, licensed for like plumbing Mm -hmm. all basically mechanical type stuff and roofing Um, Mm -hmm. but we did a lot of the work ourselves and i think that was a great lesson to me to learn not only the process so the actual scheduling of things but also to the value of what certain tasks Um, equate to, not only from a labor standpoint, but also from a material standpoint, and I think that's helped me more than anything today to when I estimate jobs. So after that first house, we were able to really kind of um, systematize a lot of things. So to put that in respect to numbers, our first house took us nine and a half months. A year to date after that, it took the same scope project took us nine and a half weeks so wow. to to go from you know the opposite of 10x like one tenth of the amount of time um I think was pretty impressive as well
0: yeah yeah that's kind of how I find these things go like your first your first project takes forever you don't know how to set up like an LLC or pool permits or anything like that but then yeah like once you're you work through all that stuff the second one just gets exponentially faster like you said and how were you finding uh, your deals? Was just, was that off the uh, MLS in the beginning?
1: It's crazy because everyone always says to me, you can't find deals off the MLS to this day, 85% of our deals come 80, uh, maybe even 90%. I haven't done in calculation recently, but I get almost all of our deals from the MLS. So I still, to this day, it's the first resource I go to. So, I think there are very creative ways you can use the MLS, and I don't know if everyone's always using it the same strategy. Um, so for us, we've just been very laser focused on acquiring specific type properties, and we can typically find them just off the MLS.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree. Um, what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I mean, uh, you're you're playing in a special in a, like a niche market where you're looking for specific types of properties. Uh, what price range are you uh, are you buying in normally like um, and what type of house are you buying
1: so we have purchased houses um the least expensive house we've ever purchased was like sixty five thousand and the most expensive house we've ever purchased was i think it was around five fifty maybe okay. I would say where we normally purchase North of 300. Um, I would say closer to 400 um, because we're going after higher end renovations. uh, And because of that, I think it weeds out a lot of the competition. I think a lot of people can get into flipping and first time flippers don't typically tackle houses north of 200,000 even. Um, So you weed out a lot of competition right there. And then we weed out a lot of competition because most people don't go after full gut rehabs and they don't go after early 1900s homes. So when we're competing, we're typically competing. Historically, up until the past couple of years, we were competing with maybe one, two other bidders. But now because of the lack of inventory we oftentimes compete with retail buyers, so what we did is we pivoted our business, and now we offer um, the ability for retail buyers to partner with us, and then we do the whole renovation for them. They purchase the property, and we we do the work essentially, um, and have a built-in buyer on the back end. We have no holding cost, so we actually act as just a renovation company for them. But it works the same way, and we have less risk.
2: Yeah. I think there's like a key point to what you just said, which is you're, you're not playing in, you know, you're, not, you're not playing in the same pool as everybody else. So you, you've decided that your niche is is above that. And that is, I mean, I, I, I do believe you can find stuff on the, on the market. I mean, there, there are homes that, that the end buyer can't just go out and buy and do the, do the deal on their, on their own. They need someone like you to, to go in and do the work and they're willing to allow you to make money to do that, which is fantastic. Um, and those deals are available on, on the MLS so that, that is really cool um, so you know obviously you did your first flip many many moons ago how did you scale your business to becoming like a flipping company not just a you know onesie z flipper
1: that is a great question because when i was looking to scale our business i literally googled how to scale a flipping business and try to understand all of the intricacies that were involved in scaling. And I couldn't find a single article on it. I couldn't find anyone who was talking about it. And now when I look back, it's such common sense. But before I I had no idea even where to start. Um, but I think if you boil it down to the three components of any business and the three components of any business is capital uh, your infrastructure, so your team and your product, right? So your capital is sourcing capital, holding capital, all your you know fixed costs, that type of thing. Uh, your team is anyone from a lender to your contractors to title company, anyone who supports your business and your infrastructure, and the product is the, the house in this scenario, right? So all your inventory, your, your houses that you're securing. When you're scaling, you're just really multiplying those factors. So if you want to do two houses at a time, you're going to have a need for additional capital, twice as much capital. If you're going after the same type house infrastructure, you need to have an A and a B squad. Um, doesn't necessarily mean one is better than the other, but you need to have at least uh, enough manpower to execute. And then inventory, you need to, on the sourcing, on the acquisition side, you need to make sure that you're putting out as many offers as you need for the yield. So when we started scaling, our yield was seven to one. So every seven offers we would make, we would get one house. And that was really easy for us because it's really easy to manage when you know what your conversion rate is. And that way you can say to yourself, okay, I'm going to be careful about putting out offers because we're, we're going to, we're bound to get a house. You know, if I offer one offer a day for a week, I'm coming up with a house. So, um, we just build out that infrastructure. We started to test other crews on projects. And then we started to, um, Put more offers out there. Make sure we had resources to capital, um, so that we could handle the additional bandwidth.
2: I think uh, so. There's a lot there that you said, and I'd like to kind of like talk about a few of the things. Like, so I would guess the first step in scaling your operations, if you're, um, is probably going to be capital, right? I I would imagine that that's where most people go first. Um, In your case, I mean, you had the you had the built-in you had your first team sort of built into your partnership, which is, by the way, that's, that's a fantastic way to start is to have, you know, have somebody in your family or somebody that you really trust that you're, uh, that you're working with. And then the product, uh, clearly you got probably got more confident over time and, uh, and, and, you know, created your, like, this is our plan. So you had, you basically, you know, you had all of your things together, but the one thing, one big takeaway from that, that I really loved is you knew your numbers, right? So you knew like strategically if. You know, for every seven seven homes I make an offer on, then I'm I'm going to end up buying one of those. So that you're able to kind of throttle up and throttle back based on what your needs were. That's that's uh, that's fantastic. I mean, knowing your numbers, kids. Um, Matt, do you know your numbers?
0: <laughs> I try to. I <laughs> Should probably know them better.
2: <laughs> well, especially after that. So, um, so then, so now it seems that you've you've transitioned your business from not just flipping. But now doing, uh, owning large multifamily properties. And so I'm guessing that's a whole different level of scaling and just a, it's a different business altogether in a way. Um, so let's talk about how you decided to make that jump uh, to large multifamily and why you did it.
1: We always knew we wanted to get into large multifamily, but we were living in Europe and Russia for um, the last four years of my husband's career. So when we started the flipping business, we were living in Europe, flipping back in the States. Um, and my, um, whole plan, you know, our whole plans collectively was to get into multifamily, but multifamily is such a relationship-based business that you really need to have a presence of face-to-face. It's, uh, you know, people talk about all the time that, um, you leverage technology and you don't have to conduct business face-to-face multifamily. I would argue you can conduct business electronically, but you are at a severe or a significant advantage if you conduct business face-to-face. So networking with brokers, going to the properties, touring local markets is such a huge advantage in multifamily and you're taken so much more seriously. So we waited to transition until we got back to the States. And when we got back, um, I was actually approached by a group to manage their construction on a 124 unit property in Houston. About 2 million dollars of construction needs there. So, I partnered with that group and originally I was supposed to only do the construction management, it quickly turned into construction and asset management. So, I managed the that property and then after that I I am someone who wants to know from the trenches and then kind of scale out and and not be in the trenches any longer and figure out like systematize what I'm doing and automate things and delegate things so I don't have to do as much. um, So I can always increase the value of my time. And what I quickly realized is how many people weren't paying attention to all the details in running these properties. So I started talking about it. And when I started talking about it, people started approaching me about wanting me to run their properties for them and i got approached maybe 60 70 times of other properties i consulted on several Um, but it ultimately landed to partnering with another group of 225 units and i do asset and construction management on that property as well Um, and then most recently um, we just wanted to have more control over the properties we're acquiring and the delivery of the underwriting so we we found our own property um and we selected specific people we wanted to partner with um to take down another 150 unit property in texas in houston as well so we just closed on that in september um and uh yeah it's been a ride for sure that's awesome Um
2: I have to say, that's a, um, you know, I'm thinking that you're owning and Matt knows more about you than I do, because he read your book. But um, I'm thinking that you're owning local multifamily, but the, you're you're managing from Pennsylvania, you're managing properties in Texas. So um, how how are you, uh, how are you leveraging? What are you leveraging to, to be able to manage from a distance? I mean, I'm clear, clearly in 2020, you're not traveling to Texas a lot, or are you?
1: yeah i still actually do i went down to texas twice in september and october um so i still travel crazy enough um but i don't i normally go to the properties about once a quarter so i normally check on the properties once every three months i go down um just to not necessarily because i don't trust the boots on the ground or anything it's actually really more of a morale Uh, boost, um, and engagement. And, um, you know, it's, it's good to check on your properties once in a while too. Um, but, uh, leveraging technology, you can do a lot as you guys, I'm sure, I don't have to convince you, um, from a distance, but Mm -hmm. all of our multifamily is outside of, um, Pennsylvania. Uh, we also have another 101 units in Ohio, um, but we don't have any multifamily in Pennsylvania. It's all single family.
0: Okay. And are these like, these are pretty large properties. So do they have an onsite manager and leasing office?
1: Yes. All of them do.
0: Okay. That's awesome. And how do you pick like these, um, communities to invest in like Texas and Ohio?
1: So we do a full analysis every six months on markets across the entire country, especially with COVID. It's been a little bit more frequent to see how different markets are reacting. Um, there are common indicators such as medium household income, job growth, um, you know, school ratings, um, landlord-friendly state versus not, business-friendly state versus not there, you know, those are kind of things that everyone looks at, um, natural disaster risk. Um, and then I've come up with an own, my own, um, calculation as to how I deem a city, um, and rank a city as recession resistant or not. So what we do is everyone pretty much has the same indicators they're looking at, but they all rank them differently and there's no perfect market. So once we identify what we believe to be the strongest indicators of a strong market, then we run through an analysis of each of the markets and then we narrow down and pick specific markets and then just focus on those markets for acquisition.
0: Okay. And then I guess from like the point where, um, like you're looking for a deal like for an apartment building how long does it take you to find the deal and then close it and then stabilize like the property um i don't know if they're value add or not
1: the property that we just acquired took almost two years to acquire so if that uh-huh. tells you kind of yeah it's a long it's a long time, time. And we looked at over 200 properties for sure to get that property. Um, and then in terms of the typical uh, under contract, so multifamily is very different than single family. It's a different contract process. there's no um, there's no standard process. you know, with residential real estate, we have a State mandated agreement of sale that needs to be utilized um, with certain verbiage, but in multifamily and commercial in general, it's the well, well, west. So you can write up any contract you want, you can say you know, you have to bring me daisies every week for six weeks after sale. Like you can put anything <laughs> and everything in a contract. So the first part of the contract process is called the letter of intent or LOI. And that is an intention to purchase. It is not enforceable, but it's a whole kind of old school way of gentleman's agreement that you have an intent to purchase. So they're going to take, take the property off market and in good faith work with you to, um, execute what's called a purchase and sale agreement, which is the official agreement that you're utilizing to purchase and acquire the property. Um, so the purchase and sale agreement really outlines all of the details as to the timeline. Um, so there's a, a, a financing contingency period, and there's also a, um, due diligence period as well. Um, The quickest you can get it done, and also depends on the type of loan you're going after, if you're acquiring a stabilized performing asset, you can have access to government backed loans such as a Fannie or Freddie loan or a HUD loan. A HUD loan takes the longest, Fannie and Freddie is shorter. whereas if it's an underperforming property uh value add type properties most of the time those fall under bridge financing bridge financing has a whole different timeline as well so uh, with covid with our current landscape on within finance right now um, it varies um, in terms of the originator how long the process is going to be but Typically, unless you're paying in cash, you would see about a 60 day close period minimum, and that can expand all the way out to 120 plus days.
0: Okay. And then, in terms of um, like reserves for these buildings, are you like negotiating that, oh, I'll take over the old person's reserve account, or um, like how much is the bank mandating, like, oh, you need this amount per unit, or how does that work?
1: So, that also. Excuse me, varies by um, property that you're purchasing. If you are purchasing a property that's under a HUD loan, typically HUD loans require a specific amount in reserves to be held. And if you are doing a loan assumption, then you're going to try to negotiate, obviously, to um, bundle the reserves in on the purchase price. Now, if you don't do that, all that means is that you then have to raise that money. So that money becomes more expensive for you to acquire, um, -hmm. you're probably going to come up at the same purchase price or the purchase price is going to be, um, with removal of that million dollars or, In addition of the million dollars, it depends on how you work it out, but the million dollars costs you more if you have to raise it yourself, right? Because there's a cost of capital element, whereas if the million was held in reserve, that cost of capital isn't there. So it's actually cheaper for you as a purchaser, if you can absorb the million dollars held in reserve, that's in the HUD loan. On a traditional type purchase, like a Fannie Freddie, Type purchaser or bridge uh, lender, they're going to have you come to the table with a specific requirements on reserves. So you'll have to have a certain holdback that varies by lender um, and also varies by vintage of the property um, because, you know, obviously a newer vintage property versus like a 1970s is going to have a different reserve um, requirement. Um, but most commonly, people raise their reserves.
2: Okay, that makes sense. That's uh, so. What I'm learning is uh, you're you are the probably the authority on all of this, right? Like I'm learning that you really you've done your homework and you really understand this business. And I think a lot of people get into this business and they they think that they're just going to kind of like find a deal, get it done, and you know they're they're not going to dig deep and really learn like the details and you know what it really takes to to understand you know to the level that you're understanding it. So that's, that's, it's very impressive. Um, so what does your portfolio look like now? Um,
1: In terms of multifamily or yeah. on the multifamily side, I have about, well, not about, I have 600 doors. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: so looking actively looking, um, yeah. I mean, I just got a list of over a hundred, off-market properties from this one broker that i work with very often um so coming through those um but i mean really just trying to continue to build out our portfolio
2: yeah so what's interesting is you just mentioned that you just got a list of, of properties from a broker what what are you looking for because i mean you're on the you're on a call right now with two brokers who you know who can find you deals so tell us what. You're looking
1: <laughs> for. So we look for properties, 1985 to 2010 vintage, and we look for properties at 150 units or more. And we also look for properties that have 150 rent bump or more averaged across each door. So that is not um, encompassing of, you know, if, if renovation was done on 40% of the property and the, the rent bumps are 300, um, then that deal would still work. So, um, you know, it just has to average out per door a minimum of 150. So that's what we typically look for. There's a couple other nuances. We only look in certain specific areas. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that's the, uh, short and sweet answer. Okay.
2: Nice. Well, if, um, yeah, if there were, you know, and after the call, we can certainly talk about what specific <laughs> areas and things like that. We won't put that, we won't put your secrets out there to the world, but, um, <laughs> um so what's the plan for 2021? Um, What's the next step for you?
1: We have some interesting things coming up. I won't speak on uh, one of them, but we have some big plans. So I hope you stay tuned and follow along because we have some really major plans for 2021. I'm really excited about. Uh, We will obviously continue to look for acquisitions of existing multifamily, uh, too. Um, And then, of course, um, we're going to continue on our single family flipping. Our single family flipping, we've scaled back. Uh, We don't do as many houses. We more go after a yield play as opposed to volume. That's always been our business model, but we're taking that to another extreme. So that's what we've been focusing on too. Um, We're looking to expand our business on the flipping side to add a wholesaling arm. So we're putting that infrastructure in place. Um, so that we can either wholesale the properties, or if we want the property ourselves, we'll we'll keep it. Um, so um, you know we have that option. And I'm a very active member and a huge proponent for the real estate investor community. So we have amazing things launching in that uh, community as well. So I'm really excited about our membership platform that la- launches in January, um, and then we have a summit, we have an annual summit and we have a few other things we'll be releasing later on next year.
2: Excellent. So are, are awesome. you, um, will you, will you be syndicating any of the deals that you're, uh, that you're looking at in the next few years?
1: It varies by deal. So um, it depends on the size of the deal. Um, so typically what we like to do is we like to um, make sure that deals we don't have this rigid structure that only one solution works for a deal so we like to have some flexibility in terms of the capital stacking so if we are able to um syndicate versus go through like pe private equity money or family office institutional type financing we have that option as well Um, really it just kind of depends on the size of the deal
0: Nice. And uh, I wanted to revisit like the book, The Only Woman in the Room. Um, like, What was your motivation behind writing that book?
1: I went to a conference held by Dave Van Horn, Mid-Atlantic Summit, about three years ago in Philadelphia. And I was sitting there, and Liz Faircloth and Andressa Godelli, who Um, they are the co-founders of the Real Estate Investor community. They invited all the women in the conference to have lunch together. And there were only 14 of us out of 450 people. So I, you know, as everyone was getting to know each other, I was just dumbfounded at how few women were in this room on real estate. And I said to myself, okay, I'm going to write a book titled The Only Woman in the Room. And um i you know i drove home with my husband that night and told him that's what i was going to do i didn't know that i was going to select 19 other co-authors but it kind of took a life of its own i started interviewing women without them even realizing that i was you know interviewing them to see if they had an interesting story if they would be forthcoming of sharing their journey and their their knowledge um and fortunate for me uh when i asked these 19 women if they would co-author the book with me and write a chapter on their background. They all said yes. So um, I'm really proud of the book because I think that we need more women role models in real estate. And I'm really happy to see that all of these women are on different parts of their journey. They have different backgrounds, they're different asset classes. Um, they're not all seven figure earners. You know, they're they're all over the map, but they're all crushing it. And you, there's something valuable to be learned in every single chapter. So to me, I just wanted anyone who picked up the book to be re- able to relate to the book, not just a woman, not just someone who flips, um, not a certain age group, really relate to at least one person in the book.
0: Yeah, I thought I loved the book. And it was, it was definitely something like, I don't know, just gave me so much good information. Um, but it was funny because when I opened it, I was looking through, like, who was in it. I saw Deborah Nye was, like, one of the authors in the book. Um, and I, she was one of the first people, like, when I was thinking about getting started in real estate, we knew her through, like, a family friend and actually became her landscaper. But she was one of the first people, like, who talked to us about getting started in real estate and really, like, set us on the right path. So
1: She's amazing. Really yeah. incredible woman.
0: Yeah, she's so knowledgeable. So shout out Deborah Nye. Kevin I come on the show. Um,
2: you know, what's, what's interesting, so I have two daughters, and I haven't read your book. I, I admit it, I have not read your book, but Matt did, and that counts, so half of us read the book. But, but it, it seems to me that that's a book that I just need to have laying around my house, um, you know, you know. so it's uh, very inspirational to, to hear what you're saying. And, you know, you said we need more uh, women leaders in real estate. I believe that there's great women Leaders in real estate. I believe real estate investors. I think I think it's just the next step. You know, you know it, contracting, investing, like all the trades. You know, there's room for for that. I mean, the founder of the How Group, his mom was one of the f- one of the first female owners of an electric com- uh, electricians company in or part of the electrical union in the city of Philadelphia. I mean, so strong women build future great businesses. And so for me, like that's, that's that's something I'm incredibly passionate about. Um, So I'm going to get a copy of the book. I'm going to leave it on. I'm going to read it and I'm going to leave it in the house somewhere. So make (laughs) make
0: your kids do a book report on it.
2: Yeah. They'll (laughs) actually, yeah, that's a funny story. They got a a slide presentation on why we should get a dog. So there was that I might get one. of Nice. Um, So my question for you, Ashley, and we ask all of our guests this question and from listening to you talk, you're probably going to say, I just read a book and I figured it out. But what was your biggest limiting belief when you got started in real estate investing? Um, I think the only, I was right. She had none. (laughs) Just kidding. Go ahead. I'm sorry.
1: I think the only, the only challenge I have is I have, I have such a love for learning that, um, I don't know. I have, I have a very positive outlook in life and positive mindset. And um, I think my mindset, you know, I was asked recently how much of my mindset contributed to my success. And I said 100%, because I think my mindset is just even when something bad happens, because trust me, like I'm in multiple lawsuits right now. Like we could be talking about all the crap that's going on too, you know, like we don't have to be talking about my highlight reel. We could be talking well, about the other stuff.
2: To talk about <laughs> the
1: disasters in real estate, Correct. like the, other, the s- only
2: woman who left the room too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the only woman who scared everyone else from joining the room. Yeah, but yeah. um, yeah. So um, I just think that when something happens, I just don't let it um, like really bother me. So I think w- my limiting belief is when. I want to do something how to figure out how to do it, so um like there's something I'm doing right now, and it has it coincides with my plans for next year, and I don't know all the pieces to it yet, right? so um, it's more so it's not a limiting belief as like I can't do it. it's more so a limiting belief of like, okay, how long is this gonna take me to figure it out, and is this gonna mm-hmm. be? A huge impact on my overall strategy, and how do I overcome that? Those are the challenges that I personally have, but um I think I've been blessed with you know just natural yeah. mindset of wanting to problem solve and I think if you have an open mind and you just everything isn't there a book called something like everything's Figure outable or something like that? I think there's be. a new book probably. Um, I'm pretty sure someone referenced that, and I agree with that philosophy. I agree that everything can be figured out, so it's just a matter of how much effort you want to put into figuring it out.
2: Yeah, Matt, I have to say, I think I pegged Ashley as being the one who didn't have any real <laughs> limiting beliefs. Just it was just a matter of how long it was going to take for her to get there. So, that, yep. uh, I love everything, it. Everything you've said throughout today has been like, "All right, I figured this out, and then I figured that out." So it, it clearly, clearly, you could do anything in the world. So that's really awesome.
1: But it's, it's really, honestly, it's not about me. It's about the people I surround myself with because Mm -hmm. I cannot, I cannot know all of this information. I mean, I know a tremendous amount about multifamily, but it's because I surround myself with people who are literally geniuses at each component. So every time I get together with my core team, my general partners, the people that I choose to do business with, it's like masterminding. And, you know, I always say to, Anyone who asked me, I would literally pay to be working with a group of people that I'm working with. And if I didn't know them, I would pay to learn from them. So if you have the opportunity to just become an expert on one specific thing and leverage that value to a group of people that you want to work with, you can go really far, really fast. And that's what I think I've been able to do in these past few years.
0: Yeah.
2: Brilliant information, and you know, people should reach out to you to see how they can to learn more
0: from you and your books and so on. It's it's great. They should listen to this podcast too. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I love what you said about the limiting belief because I think so many people stop short of like where their potential is, Um, like especially in terms of real estate. Like people will have a bathroom break or like they'll have something break in their house, and um, they're like, "Okay, I'm done." I had a bad experience. It's like you look back and you're like, oh my God, a bathroom's like not that hard to fix now. But like they stop so short because they just get stuff in their way and they don't want to figure it out. So I think you just gotta keep pushing and like reach your full potential, like you said.
1: Also, too, if you're moving at the speed that everyone else is moving, you're only gonna go as fast as everyone else is going. There's a reason why I've had the year that I've had, and it's because I'm willing to work until 2 a.m. in the morning and get up the next morning at 6 a.m. and start working again. And I work on weekends. I work on holidays. I've never, ever not worked on a vacation day. Not a day. Not like entire vacation. And every single vacation day. And I think if you're willing to sacrifice those things, then you will move very quickly. Um, It can be very draining too. So you have to have balance. Um, I do definitely will get up early, work really hard, and then spend the rest of the day tuned out and with my family. But the, you know, I'm still able to keep progressing because, you know, I sacrifice sleeping or I sacrifice, like, I don't watch TV shows and, and do all this other stuff that, you know, can, can quickly consume your time.
0: Yeah. And I guess in terms of like your goals, like, like you're working super hard. Do you ever have a goal where you're like, all right, when I get here, I'll stop or like, um this is like home base for me um or is it just like you just love what you're doing so much
1: my husband always sings i think there's a song like by Z or something it's like on to the next one on to the yeah next yeah <laughs> and he always sings that to me whenever like i either accomplish something or bring up a new idea because he's like you're constantly going like you just you need to to your point, like you need to kind of celebrate those wins. I don't,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I don't really, I just keep go. I just, as soon as I get somewhere, I then set a new goal. So, um, you know, there's I, I see everything as that. a step. There's
2: nothing wrong with Thank that. Thank you,
1: Jesse. Thank well, you.
2: I mean, Matt will tell you that I don't actually mean that, but um, <laughs> so uh, no, I think, it, I think what, what, what's interesting is the, there's a clear difference between How you're doing things and how others do things and there's a reason why you're winning and that what you just said is why you're winning because you're moving and doing things that other people are not willing to do and putting the time in that other people are not willing to do it's a pure like equation for success so i think you're doing great um it's very this has been super impressive um this is my favorite
0: part of the show though matt and i know it's yours Yeah. So now we allow our guests, like we asked you a bunch of questions. So now you get to ask Jesse and I, uh, the same questions. So what would you like to ask us? You get to ask us one question has to be the same
1: together has to be the same question.
0: Yep.
1: All right. So what are your limiting beliefs?
0: So mine is, I don't know. I feel like it's a free, like a common limiting belief, but I get, I do one thing and I get to the next stage, which like my next stage now, I've done a couple like single family homes. I have them as rentals and like fix them up. But my next stage is like flipping or doing burrs and I'm just, it's an unknown to me. So I'm scared about like raising money. I'm scared about like, Oh, like what if I don't know the same things like, Oh, what if the flip goes wrong? It takes longer. So that's like my limiting belief right now. But, um, my goal for like planning is to do my first one. So I just know like I have to do it and that's gonna become easier. And once I start doing that, then I can scale up like my rental portfolio and everything like that. But just breaking through that like plateau.
2: Yeah, uh, all right, so mine's simple. Uh, mine is basically the, the fear of not, ha- like I don't have my team together. So I don't know how to fix anything Um, so that's the limiting belief is I don't, I think I have the capital. I think I know the product, but I don't have the team. So I would say that that's been my limiting belief right now. Um, so it's, that's, what's keeping me from getting started. And, and I am actually, that's the one thing that I am working on is like, okay, so I'm going to partner on my next, on, on the next deal. Um, and you know, find a way to do it that way. But yeah, mine is just the fear of not having, not knowing what to do next or fix anything or cleaning toilets, fixing toilets. (laughs)
1: So. so, can I help you both? Yeah. Can I give... absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, so Jesse, the advice that I always give to people for, for the challenge that you just communicated to me was, um, i believe that rock stars know rock stars and i think if all you have to do is really know one good person and that good person will refer you to other people so for example how do you find a good drywall person you ask a painter because a painter follows a drywall person and if drywall person has done their job correctly it makes the painter's job easier to do so i always start off even in a new market all you really need is one good one good contact and People just want to work well with other people, Um, but getting referrals and I, the painter that we use today, we found that painter um, five years ago when I was driving and I saw him painting a house on a Saturday. And I thought to myself, if someone's willing to work on a Saturday, that's someone that I want to work with. So not being, you know, um, afraid to like put yourself out there and find those people. I also think what the third suggestion I would give you is that people kind of Glee, like they don't look for the diamond in what I said about partnering with my dad. They just naturally jump to, oh, you're, you're lucky. You had a family member who knew construction. So you were able to leverage that skill. Well, mm-hmm. what I also said is my dad w- was not physically capable of doing the work anymore, but he had the knowledge to do it. And he also had the resources because he had done it for years. Seeking someone out who is about to retire or should retire from physical work is the greatest resource you can do because they're looking for a job and they, They've, they've historically made money off of physical work, which they no longer can do, but they still need an income. So to be able to leverage their mind and then their resources is a perfect partner for someone. It doesn't have to be a family member. So hopefully that
2: that's, yeah, the that's the an awesome tip. So, so suggestions good people know good people. No good people. Uh, so get referrals. And then uh, I love the idea of looking for someone who um who's looking to you know slow down their own personal business and and possibly retire and and look to leverage those resources as well and give them you know give them value and give give them something to do absolutely love it
1: yep and then from that what i would recommend for you is a couple things one is i would fear tends to manifest itself into delaying your progress because mm-hmm. you kind of stumble on your own feet so putting yourself giving yourself an actual deadline specific dates of when you're going to achieve a certain thing so for example if you're going to acquire you know if you want to do a burr i'm going to acquire a burr by this date. like you work backwards i'll refinance it by this date. it needs to cash flow 200 dollars a door let's say so i'll give myself 30 days to rehab it that means that I have to acquire it by this date, which means I know how many properties I offer on to get the conversion. That's why, you know, going back to your numbers, knowing mm-hmm. that, knows that you have to make a certain amount of offers and you work backwards. I'm gonna make this X amount of offers per week to get me to the, my first property. And then having an accountability coach. I mean, I feel like Jesse would be perfect for you guys to set specific dates and hold each other accountable to it. You know, outlining your schedule to say, this is what I need to get done to execute on this. And then you guys have check-ins to say whether or not you're actually doing it and formalize calls that are specific to that. Not just like, Oh, we'll talk about it when we talk about show notes or whatever. But have a dedicated time, on when you when you're doing it, to hold yourself accountable and pushing yourself to do it. I mean, if you flipped a house, it burrs nothing. Like it's easy to mm-hmm. do it. So really, you're you're able to do it. Like just from your experience okay. alone.
2: So does can Matt? Can you call me coach though, please?
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's Mr. Coach to you.
0: Uh, yeah, Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> Um, oh Miyagi, yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. That's but no, that's that's great advice, and yeah, I, I believe in like, yeah, definitely setting a date of like a hard date, like um, like February first. I'm gonna start making offers, and yeah, having the accountability piece. Like we use Traction and the L10 yep. system, and that's been like huge for at least my real estate business. Um, so I definitely want to start like putting my investing goals in there too for the L10. I,
2: I think uh, this is the first time that someone ever gave us advice from our answers. We should probably make that a new part of the. Show. I like it. I love it. This was. uh yeah. You uh, you clearly uh, have a full you know command of this real estate business, and it's very it's very impressive to hear what all the things that you've had to say Say, this is an episode that people should bookmark and go back to because there is just like there's more than you can learn in what well, we're here for like forty five minutes. So. Um, it was really, really great, and um, uh, yeah, I'm just grateful that you're here. I'm, so, so how, how are you celebrating the holidays? Are you going to buy you know a few hundred doors, or
1: <laughs> I hope so. That would be awesome.
2: <laughs> That's awesome. I would love
1: to, but I think, um, I think, I think you we're to just sticking with around
2: goal in the end, right? You start with the goal of having a few hundred doors before Christmas, and you figure it yep. out. I'm teasing you. Um- yeah,
1: so I, I have what uh, 16 days left.
2: Yeah. There you go. Only
0: 20 doors a day. No big deal. Uh, (laughs) So um, where can people find out more about you?
1: You can follow me on Instagram at Badash Investor. And you can find out more about any of the companies I talked about or the book at BadashInvestor.com.
0: Yeah. Go read the book. It was amazing. One of the best overviews of like the real estate industry as a whole. So definitely go pick it up. You get an Thank ovation you. from me. That was uh, very impressive. Very Thank
1: impressive. you very much. Yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it. And uh... All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can join us weekly on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review. It really helps us out. You can find out more about me at callphillyhome.com, callphillyhome at Instagram, or email me at matt.talent at compass.com. And you can find out more about my co-host Jesse Johnson at howrealestate.com, Jesse Johnson on Instagram, and email him at jesse.johnson at compass.com.